Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, and their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another Future Tech Podcast. I'm Juliette Lamar, your host, and today my guest is Steve Hoffenberg. He is the director for IoT and Embedded Technology at DDC Research. Welcome, Steve. Hi, how are you today? I'm great. I'm great. So why don't you start us off with telling us all about VDC Research? Sure. So VDC Research is an industry analyst and market research firm. Uh, so what that means is our product is essentially information, uh, information about technology, markets, and services and such. We're one of the companies that produces market research reports that uh, size markets, you know, how many millions or billions of units of things are shipping and how much revenue is generated by sales of products and services and such. And at VDC, we have four general areas that we cover. One is IoT and embedded technology, where I work. That's Internet of Things and embedded electronics. Second area is enterprise mobility which is special purpose devices for uh, corporate enterprises in mobile scenarios, so ruggedized mobile phones and tablets, for example. Uh, a third area is called auto ID, which refers to barcodes and RFID type technology uh, used in uh, technology scenarios for companies to automatically identify things that are moving around their systems. So uh, 
cash registers, for example, or inventory tracking systems. And then the fourth area we call industrial automation, which is a practice that specifically looks at electronic systems used in industrial and manufacturing environments. Wow. So you have your hands in almost every aspect of the features of our technologies here. We have the devices, we've got barcodes, and then industrial automation as well. So let's just start off with the first one. Why don't you go ahead and explain uh, the IoT, the Internet of Things that, that you're most involved in? Sure. So the, the Internet of Things, to the extent that most people uh, have heard of it, at least among consumers, a lot of them tend to think of it as smart home products, uh, things like connected refrigerators or home appliances or, or lighting and, and thermostats and such. And that is certainly part of the uh, Internet of Things, but it's actually a relatively small part. Uh, out of the markets that we cover for Internet of Things, uh, consumer and smart home technologies are only about 10% of the whole market. Uh, the rest of the IoT is various industrial and commercial applications. And at VDC, a lot of our research breaks down by vertical market. So we'll look at areas such as aerospace and defense technology, uh, medical systems, automotive systems, uh, retail automation systems, and so on. Uh, and industrial automation, that is uh, manufacturing-related technologies, is actually the single biggest area for Internet of Things technology currently. And that would be like your car, you being able to talk to your car or your car being able to open with your phone, or would it be self-driving cars? Well, that's that's all within the, uh, the, the scope of the automotive market. And indeed, mm -hmm. the, uh, the automotive market is an enormous part and a, and a fast growing part of the Internet of Things. And um, one of the things we do at VDC Research, for example, um, is count the number of microprocessors that are shipped by the semiconductor manufacturers. And um, there are many companies, and, and uh, worldwide, uh, it's on the order of about 10 billion microprocessors a year that get produced that are among the, the types that we count. Uh, and out of those, out of that 10 billion, nearly half of them are going into the automotive market. Uh, the automotive market produces about 100 million vehicles a year, and each of those vehicles contains dozens of microprocessors, everything from tire pressure monitor sensors and ABS braking systems through the uh, infotainment uh, system in the, uh, in the center console and the, the dashboard system, as well as the uh, motor controls and such. So they're just uh, tremendous numbers of uh, electronic systems embedded in virtually every automobile produced today, and that number is growing over time. Uh, it will also be expanding in the near future over the next couple of years. Uh, you mentioned autonomous driving. That's a little bit further out uh, in terms of broad scale, but uh, even in the near term, the expansion of what's called ADAS, A-D-A-S, which is advanced driver assistance systems. The, those are things like uh, automated lane departure warning or uh, backup detection systems to, uh, to warn you if a, a vehicle might be crossing uh, uh, behind you that you can't readily see. And those kinds of systems are coming into play in an increasing portion of all the vehicles on the market uh, already. And then coming in the next uh, couple of years uh, is what's called vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications, 
as well as vehicle-to-infrastructure communications. So in vehicle-to-vehicle communications, this is cars actually communicating with each other, uh, and that, that level of communication is done in a way that's anonymous, but it's done in a way that can help vehicles avoid accidents uh, with each other and help manage uh, traffic flow, for example. And, and the vehicle to infrastructure technology will add additional layers into traffic management and parking systems and such so that uh, highway and roadway managers, for example, uh, will be able to better manage how vehicles behave on the road. Uh, and all of this involves additional uh, electronics in the vehicles, as well as additional software and additional communication services, all being layered on top of the the uh, electronics that are internal to the vehicle just to operate the vehicle itself. So uh, a tremendous amount of activity going on in the automotive market. I can't wait because I hate to drive. And so the quicker we can get self-driving cars, and I don't have to worry about parking or driving, the better for me. Safer. And, you know, yeah, self-driving cars are still a little further out. I, obviously, there are a lot of companies experimenting with it now in various ways, and um, some of your listeners may have heard of an unfortunate uh, accident yeah, recently accident. where a pedestrian got killed in uh, Arizona, and that mm -hmm. certainly puts a, a bit of the brakes on some of the development and, and uh, has everybody rethinking some of their approaches to the technology. But, uh, you know, in the... Uh, the U.S. alone, in an average year, there are 30 to 40,000 people killed in automobile accidents. Uh, and if uh, autonomous vehicles and, and self-driving vehicles can reduce that significantly, it's a tremendous savings of, of lives over the long run. Um, we're not quite there yet, but uh, I don't think there's any question that um, the people who have been studying the technology itself closely is that eventually autonomous vehicles will be considerably safer than the average human driver. Um, they will have the ability through technologies like radar and LIDAR, which is a, a light-based technology like radar, uh, to see things that the average human driver won't see and, and see them sooner and, and enable the vehicle to react sooner uh, than the average human driver. So are a lot of these technologies um, that we're seeing coming up in the cars, are they already in use in aviation? I feel like the, if you're flying a plane, a lot of times you have you have these systems set up, such as radar and detection of turbulence and whatnot. Are these similar technologies? Um, they're they're similar in a general sense, but um, there there tend to be uh, a lot of differences. I mean, most uh, modern commercial air aircraft have you know autopilot uh, that can uh, take control of the aircraft to varying degrees. Uh, but in the sky, there tends to be quite a bit of distance between the aircraft. Uh, and even though they're operating in three dimensions, under normal circumstances, aircraft never get close to each other uh, unless something's very wrong. In, in the uh, automotive scenario, it's typical and normal that cars will be in close proximity to other cars as well as pedestrians and bicycles and, you know, large There's trucks so many on the factors. road and such. <laughs> Yeah, it's a much more complex process uh, to deal with so many different moving parts uh, in the automotive environment, and uh, it takes a tremendous amount of processing horsepower, 
most of the autonomous vehicles that are on the road today uh, have essentially a trunk full of computing equipment, what amounts to a, a small computing data center uh, right in the vehicle. Uh, and one of the challenges for automakers is to be shrinking that amount of equipment uh, to more reasonable sizes that are that are both technically and economically feasible to put into production vehicles. Uh, right now, the amount of technology that's in the trunk of an autonomous vehicle is, is far too expensive to uh, be commercially viable. But um, you know, one of the the trends obviously is uh, reducing that amount of processing power as the technologies get refined. And not to mention the uh, environmental impact if you're having cars with all this technology, once it breaks or gets old, it has to go somewhere. So then the waste that you're creating is also a concern. So bringing down the size of everything will also in turn help with that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the automotive market as well, one of the assumptions is that as autonomous vehicles become more prevalent, uh, ownership of vehicles will reduce. That is, there'll be more and more people that no longer feel the need to own their own cars, but the cars that are on the road will get utilized more in car sharing kinds of scenarios. Um, you know, so today the average car spends the majority of its life parked, you know, in a driveway or a parking lot somewhere. It is only used for the, the portion of the day where someone's driving it around. Uh, as autonomous vehicles become more prevalent, the, the percent of time that vehicles are actually being used will go up, and that will uh, alternatively reduce the number of vehicles that are necessary uh, to get people where they're going. Absolutely. So we've been talking about cars a lot, but what are some other technologies in the IoT that are really exciting to you? Yeah. So um, the IoT itself really originated in the industrial environment going back, you know, 10 plus years ago. There was technology that was referred to as machine-to-machine or M-to-M communications. And you could think of a factory environment where uh, various widgets are being produced or uh, a processing plant, uh, oil refinery as an example, uh, where there's tremendous amounts of equipment and keeping those production lines going is essential to the to the business viability of the companies that own those systems. You know, if, if a piece of equipment on a production line breaks down in the middle of a production run, uh, in large factories, those the, the cost of that breakdown and stoppage of production could be on the order of a million dollars an hour for downtime. And the origins of the Internet of Things were really in systems designed to minimize downtime in those factory production systems. And you can imagine, for example, uh, a piece of equipment that has rotating motors in it, and by adding sensors into those motors, that could detect uh, vibration and temperature, for example, uh, the data coming off of those sensors can help predict when that motor is likely to fail or perhaps a, a bearing in it is wearing out and may need to be replaced. And by knowing in advance uh, what they call predictive maintenance, uh, the, the company that operates that facility can schedule replacement of parts at convenient downtimes, for example, the middle of the night or you know, Sunday uh, when uh, production isn't normally running, and, and therefore not have unscheduled downtime that, that costs a tremendous amount of money. And 
this concept of predictive maintenance is really specifically motivated by cost savings. Uh, you know, that was the original impetus for this kind of data communications from these industrial systems. And, you know, over time, that's also evolved to not only uh, save costs, but also, also improve the quality of products coming off of those systems by, by being able to monitor the uh, equipment more closely uh, and detect when there might be production problems, for example, happening very early on, or in some cases even before the, the uh, problems might appear in any products coming off the line. Um, so uh, again, the industrial environment, there's, there's very powerful motivation um, to use the data coming off of these kinds of connected systems. Well, absolutely, and machine-to-machine and -machine, uh, communication being able to predict these problems, you know, it's going to be quite helpful to the people running these machines, as well as probably enhancing their safety, say, if the machine malfunctioning could cause a problem. Yeah, yeah, can can reduce uh, worker injuries, for example, and uh, mm -hmm. damage to other equipment in, in the plant. Um, we also see as, a, as another trend going on in the IoT is as the cost of the sensors and the various IoT equipment and communication services decline, uh, for example, uh, we see it being applicable to a broader and broader range of devices and systems. So systems that are not just indoors in a factory, but equipment out in the field, uh, construction, construction equipment, for example, or uh, telecommunications uh, equipment that's installed in the field, uh, or uh, oil refinery or oil production, oil wells uh, as examples of equipment that more and more equipment is being connected. And as, as the prices go down of the various connectivity uh, sensors and uh, communication services, uh, more and more systems will be connected and more and more types of industries will be able to take advantage of the, the benefits of Internet of Things. Of course, all that raises uh, the, the concern over cybersecurity. Uh, mm -hmm. For which you know there's there's been uh, no end of stories in the news about various uh, cyber breaches uh, in both traditional IT systems as well as Internet of Things systems. And obviously, there's uh, a lot of concern, and uh, in some cases, that cybersecurity can be managed by the companies operating the equipment. Uh, but in many cases, uh, a big portion of the cybersecurity needs to be the responsibility of the companies designing and, and building the equipment. They, they need to design it in ways that can enhance the security right from the start rather than trying to essentially slap on security to existing systems that weren't built to be secure to begin with. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of an age-old concept. You know, it, security starts with person who's most affected by it. It's not. It's not someone else's problem. It's not just the police force who protects the citizens. The citizens also have to lock their doors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in the IoT, you know, there's there's responsibility going around every which way, uh, from the the uh, device manufacturers and then the the companies that manage the uh, equipment that's out in the field, and in in industrial environments or many types of environments that out, outside of the home, for example, um, there will be equipment from multiple different vendors involved, and each of those pieces of equipment may in and of itself be adequately secure, but the way they're orchestrated together as a connected system 
may need additional layers of security that either the, the plant operating equipment needs to apply or in many cases there are uh, companies called systems integrators uh, that take on that responsibility of configuring the various uh, systems uh, containing pieces of equipment from multiple manufacturers. Now, in the uh, industrial and commercial kinds of applications, um, there are a lot of players that can handle that role. Uh, in the home environment, the smart home, uh, it's not necessarily obvious who would take on that responsibility. You know, the, the homeowner mm -hmm. can only do so much. Um, and other companies, in some cases, it'll be the internet service provider that can uh, overlay security monitoring services, for example. Um, so I'm sure a lot of your listeners heard about the uh, DDoS attacks, that is the uh, distributed, design, uh, distributed denial of service attacks uh, that occurred last year uh, in which, for example, home security cameras were co-opted uh, through malware to then attack websites to essentially flood uh, websites with so many requests that it essentially brought down some uh, major websites uh, around the world. And um, the homeowners wouldn't necessarily have even noticed anything wrong because their systems were still operating okay. Uh, so the, the internet service providers can actually monitor for some of the, that uh, abnormal traffic that might be generated by infected home devices. Uh, they, they also, in the home environment, they also need to be able to protect the equipment in the home from being infected by malware to prevent it from operating correctly. So you could imagine uh, a malware-infected uh, connected thermostat for example, in the middle of winter in a northern climate, if somebody turned the thermostat way down, a hacker breaks in, turns the thermostat way down, it could lead to freezing pipes and uh, tremendous uh, amounts of water damage in a home. Uh, it could be very expensive uh, uh, damage from uh, hackers connecting into some of this home equipment. Um, a home refrigerator could theoretically be hacked in a way uh, that might cause it to spoil all the food in the refrigerator and, and so on down the line. And, and uh, some of the, the various vendors uh, obviously have uh, types of security precautions in place, uh, but because of the, the wide variety of home networks and the various kinds of equipment that could be installed and connected from multiple vendors, it's, it's a very difficult challenge to ensure that the, the home environment won't be hacked uh, or adversely affected by malware. And uh, a lot of players involved there are, are trying to come up with ways from the, the, uh, the large suppliers like Google and Amazon uh, who make a lot of the smart home equipment through to the internet service providers and third parties that will overlay their security services on top of the network connection, uh, as well as traditional uh, IT service companies, you know, the likes of uh, Symantec and McAfee, for example, that are also now offering uh, additional kinds of uh, IoT protection uh, for home network systems. Um, let's touch a little bit on, I believe it was the third bracket of, of VDC research that we were talking about, and it was the, the barcodes. So, yeah, so that yeah, that technology, where do you see, I feel like the barcodes have been around for quite some time, and 
you're still researching them, so they're going to stick around? <laughs> yeah, they they uh, they obviously uh, expanded from their original uses. You know, things like uh, UPC codes at uh, uh, checkout counters, and they're certainly mm -hmm. still used in that application uh, quite heavily. But they get expanded, uh, and the various systems include barcodes that can be applied to individual packages during shipment. That is from a manufacturer. Uh, into a warehouse or distribution channel through to a retailer, for example, uh, individual packages being shipped to the home. You know, when you, whenever you order a, a product from an online vendor, you know, when it's being shipped by uh, UPS or FedEx or et cetera, the, the barcodes on those packages are getting increasingly complex, not just with basic identification information, but uh, with routing information and other data about the package as well as the, the sender and the recipient uh, that helps, the, uh, helps the, the carrier manage the flow of those packages through their systems. And uh, increasingly barcodes and uh, also RFID technology being expanded in this logistics and warehouse environments uh, where in a in a huge warehouse that might have hundreds of thousands of different products stored on, on various shelves and large or small bins, uh, the ability to locate exactly where any given inventory item is within that uh, within that large warehouse is very very valuable um, to the operators of that system and and. Uh, improves the efficiency with which they can find and manage the, the various products that they have uh, in their inventory. The new research you're doing is into how much information can we fit on the tiniest barcode possible. Well, that, that's that's certainly part of it, although it's also, <laughs> I would say, uh, beyond that, just doing more with the information. So not just uh, taking the information about the uh, package itself, for example, but adding to that information uh, geospatial information, that is, where was that package at a given point in time, and how is it moving through the rest of the system. So it, it's not just the, uh, the information uh, on the barcode itself, but the additional data or metadata that gets associated with that uh, is becoming increasingly more sophisticated and more useful for the various companies that uh, handle items that are barcoded. Absolutely. I can imagine companies such as, you know, Walmart or, or Amazon who ship all these packages. A lot of a lot of times when it gets into the hands of a of a shipping uh, company, you know, these things get lost, they get stolen, they get misplaced. This will probably cut down on the amount of refunds or damage claims or whatnot because they will be able to know exactly where it is and what happened to it. Yeah, and, and and to a large extent, that's already happened. I mean, the the number of packages that get lost in shipping has already gone down dramatically as the the amount of tracking information has improved, and it it also helps both the shipper and the recipient, that is, the sender and the receiver, uh, know more about their packages so they can correctly anticipate when the package will be delivered. You know, years ago, somebody sent you a, a, a package and you just had to wait for it to show up, not knowing when it would uh, be likely to arrive. And with more and more information being added um, to these various packages, now it's it's much more uh, feasible and 
and in general more useful to know where and when a package is and when it's likely to be delivered even in advance. Uh, a shipper can now say with pretty good certainty days in advance when a package is likely to be delivered. That gives that gives the the buyer and the receiver a lot of comfort in knowing that they their products are going to get to them because that is it is one of the things that I think plagues a lot of people is where are my things that I ordered and these aren't the right things yeah. and whatnot. So cutting down on just human yeah. heartache would be great with that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's also getting more sophisticated in, in ways uh, such as uh, uh, package pickup points. Uh, many uh, of the whole food stores, for example, now have Amazon lockers where you could have a package delivered to the store rather than to your home and uh, use your uh, mobile phone uh, and coded information in, in your receipt in order to unlock the locker and retrie retrieve your package that way. Um, these are all ways that more and more information about the uh, packages uh, is being used in ways that benefit everybody involved. Absolutely. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on Future Tech Podcast with me. I, I really appreciate your time and all this wonderful knowledge that you are you are sharing with us through your research. It's been my pleasure. You're welcome. Uh, so thank you so much, Steve. This has been Steve Hoffenberg, the Director of IoT and Embedded Technology at VDC Research. This is Juliet Lamar. Thanks for tuning in to Future Tech Podcast. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.